Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler. My co-host, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, is with us today. And, you know, between Kathy and I, we have helped thousands of leaders to perform in the top 10%. And these days, what we're focusing on is what do top performers do in the moment to be at their best and zero in on what we're calling emotional brilliance. A lot of this is around the book that we're researching on emotional brilliance and, and asking these folks what kind of emotions do they have to be a top performer? How do they gear themselves up for a top performance? How can we get better at understanding of our emotions? And what makes up an emotional brilliance performance? What's most challenging for them? And we're zeroing in on that. Both Kathy and I um, focus on emotional intelligence. Our guest today is one of the key leaders uh, Stephen Stein around emotional intelligence, and we'll introduce him in a moment. But if we look at some of these ideas of emotional intelligence and what we're calling emotional brilliance, you think in emotional intelligence, if you did a Google um, Maps and you looked at your neighborhood and it fell with houses, those are all kind of the key competencies that maybe in the EI model. But when you zoom in to your house, you know, that would be kind of what's particular to you, you know, the key emotions. Um, and that would be that zoom in. Or we like to use this metaphor if all the competencies of emotional intelligence are your clothes in the closet, which one, when you have a performance, do you pick out to be your best? And so, you know, with that, let me bring on uh, Kathy. Kathy, welcome. Thanks, Relly. Happy to be here and excited to be with our friend, Dr. Stephen Stein. And one of the things, as a quick intro for for Kathy, um, you know that uh, Kathy leads uh, people in her organizations and entire companies into what's called the science of courage. She has a she's a much in demand speaker, TV, radio, and media personality. She has an app called Your Happiness Now that you can see her shining face. And if you want more information about Kathy, um, she has her website. WW Fearless Leaders Quiz, which has a bunch of uh, links to her tools and some of her um, best-selling books. Welcome, Thanks, Kat. Relly. So before we bring on Dr. Stein, um, we just want to make sure you know a little bit about our show. Um, for example, we are now in our 12th year, and we are one of the, um, one of the highly ranked business shows on the Voice America Network. We have uh, over 2 million downloads of our shows with millions of listeners in 42 countries now and over 126 cities. So some of you uh, may be new to the show. Some of you may be uh, a great fan base. And we just want to make sure that everybody understands that what we're focused on is helping everyone who listens in become the best person the best version of you you can be. And using emotional intelligence and uh, with our new book, Emotional Brilliance, we're hoping to bring you those insights. And before we get started, I just want to say a few words about my co-host, Dr. Relly Nadler. And of course, many of you know uh, Relly from uh, his many, many uh, wonderful posts. Uh, on Psychology Today. You also uh, may know of his top-ranked book, Leading with Emotional Intelligence, which provides hundreds of tools and strategies to, uh, to develop not only yourself, but those around you in your organization and in your industry. He has a field guide that you can get. Um, just go to uh, Amazon and look it up as an ebook, Leadership Keys Field Guide. And he also has an iApp called Leadership Keys with videos where you can see him in full swing. You may also know uh, that uh, Relly has a new book out. He's authored uh, six books, including a new book called Physician Burnout. Uh, excuse me, 
physician burnout. That's a little bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> so if you want a copy of Physician Burnout, you can find one, I'm sure, at his wonderful website. You can reach him also at drrellynadler.com. That's drrellynadler.com. And you can also text him to EI Central, EI Central to 384-70, and you'll be able to get access to drrellynadler.com and all of his great tips and tools. So, Relly, without further yeah. ado, I am so excited that we have one of our great friends, uh, one of the top contributors uh, to the field of emotional intelligence, and I just want to jump right in. So, how about if we get going? Yeah. So... So uh, let me say a word about uh, Stephen Stein. So he is a clinical psychologist. He's the CEO of MultiHealth Systems, which puts out uh, emotional quotient inventory, which Kathy and I both use and are certified to certify others. He had been the chair of the Psychology Foundation of Canada, and he has a bunch of you know great books. The one I'll just highlight one is the EQ leader. We have some questions about that. How do you instill passion, creating shared goals, and building meaningful organizations through emotional intelligence? It's an outstanding book. And then he's also going to talk about a new book that he's going to be coming out uh, on resilience. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with the both of you. Nice to uh, speak to you again. And and we know you just came in from a trip to overseas uh, in London, and so we're so happy that you or uh, available, you know, f- for us here. So we want to jump into this and kind of ask some questions that we got prepared really around the field of uh, emotional intelligence and what we're also zeroing in uh, emotional brilliance. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what's kind of new with the EQI, emotional quotient inventory. You know, Kathy and I are avid users um, and from whether the research or uses, and so um, let's start with that. Well, there's uh, there's so much happening; it's hard to keep up with it all. So basically, <laughs> um, EQI 2.0 is expanding into different areas. There's a lot of uh, work done and being done in healthcare with specific groups. I'm doing a study right now with uh, with nurse anesthetists, but there's all kinds of physician work and physiotherapists and and other groups looking at what makes success within some of those helping professions. Another area I've been doing some really exciting work with is in high performance, specifically with athletes and uh, musicians, entertainers. Yeah. So um, so that's been a lot of fun, uh, working with really high-performance athletes to look at a number of things. One is, is, of course, what makes them successful. And another thing that we're interested in is longevity. Why is it, for example, in entertainment, specifically in music, that some people come out and, and sort of make a flash and then they burn out quickly versus other people in the industry manage to last for 10, 15, 20 years or more. So we're right. looking at emotional intelligence and our new area, hardiness, as something that's trying to predict within these areas. Yes, Steve, that's interesting because um, the whole idea of, of hardiness, right, relates to, to grit and that all relates to Distress, right? The ability for each of us to endure stress. What What do you think emotions um, are doing uh, related to stress, and why is it so challenging today for people to to stay on task and to have that emotional intelligence that they need in the moment? Well, what we're finding, uh, and again, this is really exciting, some of this uh, research is new and some of it goes back 20, 25 years in the, in the hardiness area. First of all, hardiness is a bit different from grit. Grit is basically putting your head down and pushing forward and, and just don't stop going. And hardiness has an advantage in where, you know, you may want to be the, the world's best classical pianist, but you're just not going to get there. Hardiness has this sort of stop-and-think mentality about it where, I may not be the best piano player in the world, but maybe I can teach piano or I can perform locally or you know, any number of other options. In terms of the emotions, what's really exciting, you know, for, for the longest time, a lot of the work in stress has been all about reducing stress, you know, relaxing, meditating, all that kind of thing. 
And what the research has found is it's really much harder to reduce the physiology, all that anxiety that you're experiencing, and it's easier to reframe it. So hardiness has a lot to do with reframing anxiety. So instead of being anxious and worried about something, we change our thoughts into excitement and challenging and a new experience. And it's amazing what you find when you're able to get people to reframe the situation. And, and we know this because that's some of the work that we end up talking about. Is, is it a, just changing that thought, like you're saying, Steve, from a threat to a challenge all of a sudden kind of motivates you in, in a different way? I'm, I'm curious, any kind of thing that you around musicians and athletes that you saw, any kind of themes, you know, around the competencies, like, is, you know, anything that you noticed that there were surprising in the, in the EQI about where they were high or low? Yeah, one of the areas that we're uh, studying right now is uh, high-performance tennis players and, you know, what goes on, what do they bring uh, to the court, I guess you say, in terms of their ability to compete. Some people refer to mental toughness. In the recent um, U.S. Open, for example, a 19-year-old female named Bianca Andreescu uh, won. She beat Serena Williams in the finals. And it was uh, quite an exciting match to see how she overtook a veteran, one of the world's best tennis players. So I've been working with a couple of her coaches, and we've been looking at, you know, what are the ingredients that going into making a, a champion? You know, someone at 19 years of age who could go into the U.S. Open when the crowd's totally against her, booing and cheering for Serena Williams, and yet she can go in there and win that match. So a lot of it is this is the self uh, self-confidence, self-actualization, uh, a number of those areas that, uh, that we study in emotional intelligence really stand out. And a lot of in terms of preparation, how do you prepare for that big match, that big challenge? What are the steps you take? What about, what's the role of visualization? And how does that influence your emotional state when you're walking onto the tennis court? So those are the kinds of things that we're studying with, mm-hmm. the, with a number of elite athletes. Well, it, it's... Uh really important for people to understand that um, when we look at these individual powerhouses, uh, like this 19-year-old young woman, uh, do you think that uh, age has anything to do with uh, emotions, emotional intelligence, feeling versus calculations, um, say more uh, a little bit about how that affects decision-making. Well, I think age has, a, yeah, age has a lot to do with it, and that's why uh, we're really excited when we look at uh, players who are, like with Bianca, who's like 19 years old. So what we're doing now is we're working with a number of players that have identified by, in this case, Tennis Canada, who are 8, 9, and 10 years old. These are people who have been identified as tennis prodigies. And we're looking at their emotional makeup, how they approach situations, how they approach competition, how do they take with losing, how do they take when, when they lose a match, when they lose a point. And again, you're right, the, uh, the age makes a huge difference. But when we study some of these high-performance players at 8, 9, and 10 years of age, the ones who, who go on and are top-ranked in the country and the world, ha- they're different in terms of the way they approach these situations. They're able to uh, to navigate their emotions and have the right sort of mental thought or hardiness that we talk about. Hmm. Well, the only reason but, I'm uh, just focused on this for a moment uh, is because we just had uh, a UFC fight at Garden this past weekend, uh, and... Some of the top performers, world champions even, going back into the ring uh, later in their careers facing younger opponents uh, have much more experience and certainly have that emotional intelligence to a degree, but they're still not winning their matches. And I'm just wondering if there's anything, any nugget uh, that gives hope to those of us old folks around who are still in the game. So that's a really good point, Kathy. What is it that enables uh, more senior athletes to actually come back, uh, make one of these, these comebacks? And, you know, what we know is that success in, in most sports has four components. One is your physical ability, your physical strength. The second is your sort of knowledge of the sport. 
The third is what we call your sports IQ or intelligence. And the fourth are these emotional intelligence hardiness factors that we're, we're looking at. So, uh, that's a, that's an exciting area. We're also looking at some comeback athletes. Uh, we're looking at, uh, a female who had won several medals on the U.S. swim team and has had a couple of children and now wants to come back into the next Olympics. What is it that makes someone successful again? We think you can do it with the right combination of training, both physical training and mental training. Excellent. So that's great work you're doing, Stephen. So some of this is going to show up in your hardiness book. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Some of it, uh, we've written up uh, some of the tennis uh, research that we've done in the hardiness book. Maybe say a little bit about that, because then we're going to ask you some more questions, you know, about kind of you and, and your emotions and how you got in the field. But so say a little bit more about the hardiness book now and, and uh, you know, how long you've been working on it and what's kind of the general theme. So the hardiness book I've been working on for the last uh, year or so. And my co-author, uh, Paul Bartone, uh, was a, uh, he's a retired colonel from the uh, U.S. military. He actually taught at West Point, and he's a psychologist. And he's mm-hmm. been working in the area of hardiness for close to 30 years. He actually did his uh, Ph.D. dissertation in it a long, long time ago. So we've got some really great data, including leadership data from West Point. What is it that makes a leader? And that's some of the studies that look directly at hardiness versus grit, where hardiness was a better predictor of, of uh, successful leadership. Just to point out what hardiness is, it's, it's what we call the three C's. So one is commitment, that you have a, a purpose, a goal, something that you're striving towards. Uh, the second is what we call control. So that's the idea that you know what part of the situation that you actually have control over, what things you can change versus what things you can't, and you know how to make those changes. And finally, we look at what we call commitment, and, uh, uh, sorry, at the challenge. And challenge is that ability to translate a stressful situation into more of an interesting puzzle, into, you know, changing the way you see the stress and, uh, and tackling it head on, not avoiding it, uh, you know, some, some techniques do, but really, how do we approach this stressful situation? How do we, uh, what's the best way for us to attack it? So, uh, we've been working on this book for the last, almost a year now, and it'll be released on January the 2nd. Mm. Excellent. Yeah, Barton's work, we've been uh, making reference to, Steve, uh, in some of the uh, toughness work that we've been looking at at the United States Navy, so very exciting. So, mm-hmm. So a couple of other things we want to check in uh, with you, Steve. In your EQ Leader book, I just recently picked up again, and because this ties into what we're talking about with emotional brands, you talked about the direct effect of emotions and feelings versus calculations and really around decision-making. And so a lot of what we're trying to focus on is what happens for someone in the moment, and that's why your research and all the EQ stuff is in the moment. What happens from their input? about themselves, input about others, so they have great output, which the output would be decision-making. So maybe, you know, say a little bit about what you've been finding, you know, in, in regards to the effect of emotion and feelings on decision-making. A lot of great data that's come out on the role of emotions in making decisions. You know, some people, when it comes to making a decision, are overly emotional. They let their emotions sway them uh, beyond what logic tells them. And other people are under-emotional, where they don't use emotions at all to help them make their hmm. decisions. And as we know, emotions are a big part of decision-making. In terms of direct versus indirect emotions, you know, when there's a situation when I have to, uh, I don't know, I have to instruct you in something, really, I, have, I may be emotional about the fact that I've got to give you feedback. You know, make, make me, that whole situation might make me anxious or, you know, affect the way I give feedback to you. On the other hand, on the indirect side, uh, I just may have come from a, a bad encounter with someone else, so I'm kind of feeling angry, and now I've got to go give you feedback, which is more indirect. There's some other emotion that's influencing me, not directly related to you, but it's going to influence the way I deal with you. So that's why emotional self-awareness is such an important factor when it comes to decision-making. So, Steve, yeah, that's great. you... Uh... As you started to come up with the idea of, of leveraging stress, of 
using stress, of working with stress, when you thought about how you yourself deal with this concept of stress and emotional intelligence, what have been some of the biggest challenges you faced in um, understanding that for yourself? So in terms of myself, it's really kind of interesting. So as you, you guys know, I've been giving presentations and speeches for, you know, the last 30 or whatever years. And I can speak to crowds of, you know, a thousand people. Uh, I've been on national TV shows. And I don't get nervous at all when I do that. I'm, I'm excited and I'm confident. But um, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm also a musician. I play the saxophone and I play uh, in a saxophone quartet and I play in a couple of bands. I get petrified when I have to play music in front of a crowd sometimes. Hmm. And it puzzled me. Why is it, and my musician friends just laugh at me, because I can go give a speech in front of hundreds of people and be really (laughs) calm and cool, but i got to play a piece in front of five people, and one of them might be one of my coaches, and I'm terrified, right? I make mistakes, I don't get through it properly. You know, you can sort of tell that it's not perfect. And I've been trying to understand this. What is it about performing music that makes me anxious and I can't overcome that as easily as giving a speech in public? So that really drove it home for me. And I've been trying to really come to grips with the things I tell myself. And I'm very much more critical when it comes to music. I know that when I'm giving a talk, I'm talking to you guys now, let's say with live radio or live TV, I make a mistake. I can make a joke about it. I can say, oh, oh you know, maybe I, you know, this is what I meant to say. When it comes to music and I make a mistake, I'm done, right? I'm toast. If you, if you know music and you're listening to me, you know I blew it, right? I can't go back and redo that. So that kind of thinking uh, is, is, is what's important. And that's, and there's a, an important link between, I found, between performing music and, for example, sports like tennis, where tennis players prepare themselves before the match. And what they tell themselves is really important in terms of performing an optimum performance. And musicians often do the same until they internalize it, where they're excited about playing in front of you, and they don't worry about it. They'll think about making mistakes. It's not even in their radar, right? So I have to teach myself, don't worry about mistakes. And if you make a mistake, just keep going. It doesn't matter. It's not the end of the yeah. world. All the stuff that we've been taught in these other areas, but when you apply it to yourself sometimes, it's quite a challenge. <laughs> well, that's so interesting, yeah. Steve. My, my son plays the, uh, the uh, jazz guitar, and, you know, that kind of spontaneity, I'm just wondering, and also, you know, knowing that, given a speech, you're up there and it's just you, is there something around the idea of, you know, connect, you know connecting with your folks and, uh, you know, in the band and how they're going to, and how does that impact them? Because you have a greater impact on the, the band than it would be on the audience because they don't necessarily care if you made a mistake or not. Right. Yeah, it's easy. And, and as a musician, um, you know, if you're so worried about how you're playing and making mistakes, you can't connect with the audience and you can't connect with the other band members. It becomes, right. it sort of gets in the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so one of the questions that we're asking people, and we're going to probably use some of this in our book, if you had to think about the emotions that you experienced the most, you know, on a regular day, you know, let's say like today, if you got to say, okay, here's this, you know, on a regular day, here's this, the one, two, three emotions that I experienced the most, what would you say? Well, one of them um, that I'm fortunate to experience is passion because, uh, as you guys know, I really love what I do. Like, I sort of live and breathe the psychology thing and emotional intelligence and, you know, the areas mm-hmm. that we work in. So uh, I look for things every day to be passionate about. When I when I go around the office, I talk to our research group, I talk to a marketing group and a sales group. There's always something that gets me excited. There's always, you know, either some new application of emotional intelligence or some new, uh, you know, new, new customer group that we're working with. So passion is probably number one. I try and keep that going. Uh, I mean, the other ones that are similar around there are sort of interest, excitement, um, I mostly fill my days with positive emotions. Uh, I really uh, try not to get mired up in negative. I mean, disappointments happen. Things don't go the way you plan. 
So I would I would leave it at disappointment and then try and sort of move on as opposed to getting depressed or sad about those kinds of things. So for me, it's really about trying to find the positive emotion that keeps me motivated, that keeps me going. As you were uh, coming uh, together with Barton in this book and thinking about his experiences uh, as uh, you know, a teacher and a psychologist uh, for you know, future uh, warriors, uh, per se, and you think of yourself and what you've been doing for so long, uh, training, you know, and developing people and especially leaders, was there anything that you could think of uh, regarding how these two uh, audiences dealt with being overwhelmed or any particular emotion that distinguishes them from any other group? Sure. So in the book, we talk about um, one of the areas we cover is prisoner of war, which is probably, you know, the worst situation anybody could imagine, right, to be prisoner of war. And we talk about uh, well-known people like John McCain and others who've documented their experiences uh, under those circumstances and look at what it is that helps them come through. We look at, like, Victor Frankl, who was in concentration camp, and we look at, you know, how do these people overcome these really difficult situations? And then we looked at people uh, just in life around us, um, and and I discovered some people, uh, one that I wrote about, a, a female entrepreneur who's very successful in a, in a large, uh, she has this executive search uh, company that's done really well. And in a casual uh, conversation, I found out about some real hardships you had growing up in terms of uh, physical sexual abuse, in terms of a father being murdered when she was seven years old, like a lot of grim stuff that she never even told anybody about. She kind of was surprised that she was telling me this stuff, but I had a way of, I guess, engaging people in conversation. And she gave me permission to actually use this in the book. So we have a number of these really human interest stories of people who've gone through really difficult situations and turned their life around. Like, how do you survive these these situations? And I think that that helps us a lot in terms of Understanding, for example, in hardiness, these three factors and how they come into play in helping people get through difficult times. Well, that sounds like that's going to be fascinating. And, and zero, you know, zeroing in on the same kind of stuff we're researching about, kind of what emotion is kind of the go-to emotion. And so maybe even with some of that that you're saying, because we're trying to have this idea of kind of what's your what's your go-to, and like you talked about, commitment, control, challenge. Any kind of themes that, like, say, with these survivors, that you know, it's it's the go-to that it's like their anchor. Maybe it's another way of saying yeah. that that kind of pulls we, we them can, through. The go-to for them is commitment. It's purpose. Uh, it's maintaining a, a life purpose. In, in those situations, we found that the survivors are the ones that um, you know see the future, see a purpose. They stand for something. They believe in something. Whether it's their country whether it's uh, the fact that they're going to contribute to the world when they get out of this situation. They manage yeah. to mentally keep themselves going with purpose. That would probably mm. be the biggest differentiator that I saw in, uh, mm. in those who survived well and those who succumbed to post-traumatic stress. Yeah. So, uh, Kath, I don't know if you're going to ask a question, but I'll, I'll jump in. When, when you think about... Um, some of the leaders that you work with, you know, and now we're talking, we already talk about kind of survivors and stuff, but you know, all of us, the three of us are, you know, in organizations working all the time. Any kind of common things that you see common emotions with leaders today, because you know, the work you're doing, we're doing trying to help them. What do you, what do you notice, you know, is maybe some of the key emotions that they're having? Well, one of the the big things we're seeing a lot is um, emotional self-awareness which feeds into authenticity. Uh, leaders today more than ever have to be authentic. We are really skeptical. I mean, the world, as you know, is kind of crazy right now, and we're skeptical of, of many leaders out there, right? We don't believe them. We talk about fake news. We talk about all kinds of, you know, deceptions or lies or whatever. So to be a, a successful business leader, you really have to get buy-in, which means you really have to be 
authentic, which means you really have to be self-aware. You have to know yourself well and, and have principles that you live by. So that would be one big area that we see. The other big area, and the one that's probably most responsible for derailment, is interpersonal skills, interpersonal relationships. So we're finding, again, in our data, that when leaders get turfed or thrown out or fail, it's usually because they have poor interpersonal skills. You know, the people around them either tend to be afraid of them, so they won't give negative information about what's going on in the organization. They hide it because they don't want to get yelled at. You know, they, they like to shoot the messenger. Um, or they do other things to avoid uh, dealing realistically with their leaders. So interpersonal skills is, mm-hmm. a, is another really big one for success. Yeah. And optimism. And I would... Optimism. Oh, I was going would... to say, Steve, that when okay. you think about those inter... Yeah, when you think about those interpersonal skills... When you talk about being authentic, there's a very fine line, especially when you're stressed, between controlling your anger and controlling that uh, anxiety and controlling that overwhelm and not looking artificial. So, to me, and I'd love your comment on this, Steve, The hard part of leading in that interpersonal exchange is about how do you show appropriate levels of stress and what does it look like? Because you can't be a robot, right? You can't, as you said, you can't be inauthentic. And if people know that you too are human, right, you too have uh, sensitivities, uh, you too have elements of stress in your life. So how does how can we look at those things, those components of stress, and help anybody pick one thing, one thing they can do to continue to look authentic while they're losing their mind? Right. Well, we have to we have to teach readers to uh, to be able to express the fact that they're stressed out. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you do it appropriately. People can know that you're concerned or you're upset or things aren't going well, but then you always have to look at the future and be a bit up to tie some optimism into it and say, you know, things aren't going well. We know it's a tough time, but you know what? I think we can get through this, and here's some ideas on how we can do that. So, you have to show your vulnerability. You have to show the fact that uh, things aren't going well because everyone knows when things aren't going well. It's not a secret. And the more you can deal with it and address it, the more respected you'll be as a leader. Yeah. And that goes along with what, what we're, one of the things we're talking about in, in our book is, you know, that whole thing about kind of naming it, the emotion, name it to tame it, like they say in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's kind of one of the pieces you know, around emotional self-awareness, like you're saying, um, with that. With this idea, kind of that word zeroing in, you heard it in the intro about emotional brilliance. It's kind of like in the moment, is there any examples in, from your research or what you've seen, like in the moment this person pulled out the perfect response, you know, that we would kind of call, wow, that was brilliant. You know, and yes, it includes all the kind of the EI competencies and kind of what they know about themselves, how they read the situation. But any examples of you saying, wow, that was a brilliant response? Um, it's a tough one. Uh, what, and again, that's why we're studying some of these high-performance groups like the athletes and entertainers, because they encounter more of those situations than most of us, right? For most of us, right. we get by every day and things like that bad usually, and Every once in a while, we, we, we hit a crisis and we got to deal with it. But for these athletes, these high-performance elite athletes, they're hitting that, that period like regularly, every competition. Yeah. So one of the things we looked at for, in the tennis example, when Bianca had to play uh, Serena Williams in that, that final match of the U.S. Open, uh, you know, she won the first uh, the first. Uh, set. And then the second set she was winning, but then Serena started coming back. And it looked like Serena, and Serena's known for that. She's a tough competitor, right. and she's known for coming back from behind. And personally, my heart sank when I watched that. But I interviewed the coach, her coach, 
um, one of the coaches, and I asked him about that. I said, what were you thinking when she started falling behind at that point? She's 19 years old. The crowd was so loud. I mean, you could see at one point she covered her ears. And he said, you know what? I was happy. I said, what do you mean you're happy? So because we rehearsed that so many times. And this is that whole visualization thing. So um, for a lot of these athletes, it's not a spur-of-the-moment brilliance. Uh, for some That's people, maybe it is. it is. But in her case, they had practiced a hundred times her playing against Serena Williams and her follower. Her main thing was to break her serve, which she did. Her next main thing was to serve to her high left side because she knew she had more trouble high left. So these were all cues for her of things that she'd seen in her mind a hundred times already. And her coach knew that we had practiced this. She knows exactly what to do. She knows to, to hit her high left uh, and, and beat her on that and beat her on the serves. So sometimes we look emotionally brilliant that we did it in the spur of the moment, but when it's right. the high performers, they rehearse it. But what's beautiful about that, because we're kind of trying to label this kind of this go-to emotion, but it really is kind of it's really kind of the go-to practice into a habit. You know, like you're saying through the visualization, especially like you're saying those high stress situations. I've already been here, and I'm just pulling out what I already know, versus somehow magically trying to pull it out. That's great. Right. In high pressure situations, it's you know it's a rare person who could just on the spur of the moment hit the right emotion, the right time. I mean, it happens, but it's rare. In most yeah. of the situations we're looking at, it's within their repertoire, and they know which 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 are the the swords to pull out. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I, let me ask you this question then, Steve. If you've got an athlete um, or an executive. Uh, or just a, you know, a parent. <laughs> but, uh, in my case, I am working with some pretty elite, um, individuals and they, they go off the tracks, right? They derail. Uh, and it will happen. You know, I, this 19 year old will derail. It might be when she's, you know, not getting the meal she wanted or, um, her luggage doesn't come in time and she's now running late. You know what I mean, right? So right. yeah. you can't practice for those things. So when, well, we try when to. We, we try to. We try to teach well, him about frustration and, and dealing with those situations. Right. But, but again, so this goes to my question. When people derail, when yeah. we talk about, you know, trying to keep that emotional brilliance in the moment or using it, as you're saying, and you're fascinating your book, use the stress for you instead of against you, what, what is it that you think is the nugget there? I think the nugget there is another thing that we're looking at, which is ritual. So if you are, are with it enough to recognize that you're derailing, that this isn't working for you, we go back to rituals, and we try and find rituals for people. For In tennis, you've probably seen tennis players strumming their strings. They're not, they're not testing the strength of the strings. They already know that. What they're doing is a ritual that they do before each each play, each shot, that they, right. they get their, their mind focused again. In music, uh, you see them do it. Uh, some of us will, will, will play our keys like quickly, like we'll do a, a quick uh, thing on the instrument uh, so that mentally prepares us for going forward and then playing mm-hmm. a certain piece. Uh, and for, for business executives, you can find examples, too, where they'll do a power pose or they'll do some kind of ritual that prepares yeah. them. Uh, for that, the next event. Well, it's it, it's interesting that you say that, Steve, because I'll piggyback on that. That the neuronal connections uh, stay consistent if the ritual stays consistent. So we know from neuroscience when, in fact, these wonderful athletes or you know executives are unfortunately uh, off their game and in a hospital or recovering from some kind of debilitating uh, disease or what have you, that if they mentally practice those rituals, right, you're calling it visualization, I've known physical athletes who've even been able to maintain a portion of their muscle mass and a, a greater portion of their ability to bounce back into that sport because they have been doing just that. They've been ritualizing this this whole thing that they do, whatever you want to call it, leading up to 
getting out there and, and being in the spotlight. And so doing that is real. It keeps the neurons firing, and therefore it, the feedback mechanisms reduce that stress and increase their capacity to bounce back. Absolutely. That's correct. That's what we see. So kind of piggybacking on that, uh, Steve, when you're dealing with, let's say, you know, athletes, people at work, um, what's kind of your go-to in, in helping them deal with their emotions? You know, we know from the EQI, we have the impulse control, and we have assertiveness and emotional expression, but, you know, like what... What's some of the best advice when someone's overwhelmed? If you kind of think about one of the key emotions in the workplace, most people are kind of over are overwhelmed on some level. What would you? What's your your kind of key interventions or, to help them? Well, that's why we like the EQI so much. It helps really narrow it down in those fifteen areas and see which are the ones that stand out. So, sort of in the scenario you're presenting, let's say stress tolerance is one of those ones that the person is not able to function because there's too much going on, either too big a workload. Uh, I think the number one thing is to identify it, um, to see what their level of awareness is about what's going on around them, what's creating the, the performance uh, issues that they're having. And once you have that, is to start asking questions about it, to find out uh, what's going on around that situation. It's really important that they see it, you know, sometimes they sort of gloss over stuff and don't pay attention to it. So you really got to zoom in and make sure you're on the same page with the person that, yeah, you know what, people are just dumping stuff on me. I don't have time to think. I don't have time to breathe. I got to get through this, you know, whatever. And then you can start and deal with it, you know, in terms of how they approach it mentally, in terms of how they approach it physically, in terms of scheduling or their time, uh, socially, do they have social support? You know, then you can start right. looking at all those different areas and build them in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that kind I, I of, have you know, to say all... this, guys. I just have to say this, guys. That, to me, sounds like parenthood. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like right. we need to surround ourselves with all the right people who can help us in all those wonderful areas that Steve just described, right? So it's yeah. not just those things for the best and, you know, uh, practicing athletes and leaders. It's for all of us. I mean, we really need to take hold of what we're doing in life, why we're doing it, what's the purpose, how committed are we? Is this challenge really the one that we want? And parenthood seems to be the one that we can't escape. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's one role True. that you got to see your way through. So this, this book, you need everybody needs to read this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's certainly, you know, <laughs> that's certainly one of the key playing fields. And, you know, and Steve, we have a, a motto in our Emotional Brilliance book that kind of goes to what you're saying around identify emotions. It really is the acronym of NAME, N-A-M-E. So how do you notice and name it, the emotion? How do you accept mm-hmm. The emotion, and that's that's a big one. I think the accepting and, you know, some of the, um, uh, you know, the, the aspects of ACT, you know, uh, acceptance, commitment, therapy, how do you accept it? And then the M is yeah. where we're having a lot of strategies. What you're talking about is how do you manage it? You know, how do you manage thoughts? Mm-hmm. How do you manage actions? And then the E is really how do you express it? You know, and so in the EQI, we have expressiveness. Um so on the E side of at least the model, we're, we're promoting more. What do you notice with folks that you're dealing with? How, what's the best ways for them to express what's going on? You know, in the EQI, we have uh, uh, some of those questions in there that can be, may not be business-like, you know, are you expressing sadness, uh, that. But what have you noticed, you know, and or how do you coach people around expressing in an appropriate way of what's going on for them? When we get back to authenticity, which is the ability to express how you're really feeling. Now, again, in, in high-profile high sports, it's a little tricky because you don't want to tip your hat too much to the opponent. Like, you may be scared out of your mind, but you don't want to show that to your opponent. You want to yeah. look mentally tough and able. So that's a bit, a bit different. But in the real-life day-to-day of, of work and executives, 
Um, you want to be able to express how you feel. You want to come across as sincere, as honest. If you if you're uh, doing what we what we call um, you know uh, labor, uh, emotional labor, which is I put a smile on my face even when I'm really angry, upset. People can read through that because fake smiles. You know, people detect those. Your eyes aren't exactly. in line with your mouth and so on. So you've got to find a way to express even negative emotions in ways that are not destructive. Mm-hmm. You, you know, a lot of people use humor. Have you ever noticed that their go-to way to get around being angry um, in the moment is to use humor? Is that really a good emotionally intelligent strategy, or does that give away your uh, credibility? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the stories I have in the book is about the uh, the head of homicide in a major metropolitan police um, force, and I interviewed him and tested his hardiness. and And one of the things that came out of my time with him was exactly what you say. They refer to it as gallows humor, and dealing with murder cases, murders of children, murders you know horrendous cases that uh, this officer had to deal with uh, in homicide. And he talked about having uh, two things. One is being able to make these bad jokes with your peers. We also look at firefighters who do the same thing. They have gallows humor. And secondly, the ability to have a partner who you can sit and have dinner and a glass of wine and talk about something else. You know, the ability to escape from all that stuff. Because, you know, homicide investigators get locked into very difficult crimes for long periods of time. They were horrendous hours. It's just extremely stressful. But uh, but uh, this, this Mark, this uh, officer told us about gallows humor and how it's helped him get through more cases. Uh, you know, people think it's kind of sick or bad, but there's literature on it that it really helps these first responders get through those situations. Yep, yep, yes, definitely. And it seems like what that does is just gives them some distance, you know, so we think about a kind of emotional distance instead of it being, you know, in their face, in their head, in their heart, it, you know, it just kind of lets them step back a bit. And, you know, almost it's kind of like a mindfulness practice at a step of just stepping back and looking at it from a different lens, I imagine. Right, but not just distance, because it was just distance, you say, oh, let's go do some relaxation therapy or some whatever. (laughs) That's avoidance. (laughs) Excuse me. There you go. And this is not avoidance. This is is dealing with the situation. You're not walking away from it. You're dealing with it in a different way. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Well, Well, this hour has flown by. My goodness. I think we're at, towards the end end of the hour here, uh, Steve. So let's kind of maybe ask just some information. If people need to kind of uh, check in with things that you're doing at MHS, I mean, don't you have a, a YouTube channel where it's got a lot of videos you, and stuff? There is a YouTube channel, uh, which they can find at MHS.com and go to okay. our talent portal. Uh, I have my own website, which is stevenstein.com. And okay. very soon, not yet, we will have a, uh, a website for the Hardiness book, which would be uh, hardinessmindset.com. It's still about a couple of weeks out from being released. That's great. Beautiful. Can't wait. Mm. So, Steve, as, well, we, uh, as we begin to wrap up here, uh, if people want to get... Uh, more information on the book. Uh, you said you have this separate website for the book. Um, any place else that they should be looking for building? Sure. Make it, uh, on, the book is, is these, uh, yeah, it, it's already it's available for pre-order at Amazon.com, at BarnesandNobles.com. Uh, so all the all the usual uh, major booksellers have it up and ready for pre-orders. And then fantastic. Uh, doesn't it, doesn't MHS have a new hardiness scale too? That's right. Yeah, a lot of our research that we put in the book comes from uh, the hardiness resilience gauge, which is the tool that we've been able to use with a lot of the people that we studied to look at how these three factors, these three C's of hardiness, actually have influenced their lives. That's great. 
Outstanding. Well, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you, Steve, and we could go on for another hour. So we're going to have to get you back on the show after you are uh, feeling better and on your feet here in the United States, having been a world traveler. And we thank you so much for being with us on Leadership Development News. Well, thanks for having well, thank me. Thank you, Steve. Great uh, speaking with, with the both of you. It's always fun. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. And and thanks to our audience for tuning in to Tune Up Your Performance. So this is Leadership Development News saying goodbye. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gained some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50% to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Kathy Greenberg, New York Times bestselling author of What Happy Working Mothers Know and internationally acclaimed What Happy Companies Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical knowledge for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group programs, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch Kathy Greenberg at leading conferences and as a spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America. For free tips and downloads, visit Kathy's award-winning book site, WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com. Or for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results for your business, visit Kathy Greenberg at H2CLeadership.com. That's H2CLeadership.com. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. 